City, City Limits. Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City City Limits. Limits. Okay, City Limits, and it's the third Wednesday of the month. It's um, therefore our housing day, and we're doing two... We've got two people coming in to talk about housing issues. Um, I'm Kevin Healy, by the way, and uh, Eugenie Zubchenko's got one of the guests lined up, and Meg Kimber's over there pressing the buttons, etc. Um, the Morning. first guest... Uh, Hi. First guest. So the first guest we're going to have is Alex Fernside. He's from a group of Melbournians called Urban Coop who are starting up a co-housing community. Right, so we'll find out all about that. Mm, yeah, we'll find all about co-housing. Well, hopefully we will. I hope he knows what he's talking about. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I hope he wasn't listening to that. Um, and uh, Fiona York from the Housing with the Aged Action Group is also coming into the studio, and she might even join in that discussion, but she'll talk about general housing issues as we do every month with that group. We've never um, really mentioned the fact that Housing for the Aged Action Group have their own show they on do, 3CR. And now there's a cart now saying they've changed their time to yeah. the second and fourth Wednesdays, so it means they're going to be on the second and third and fourth Wednesdays, if you think about it. I'm pouring tea in the background here. Uh, I'm a little bit confused yeah. about when they're going to be on now. Second, third and fourth Wednesdays. No, well, the, sec- the third, they were always on this program on the third. Oh, and the second and yeah. fourth, they've got their own program. So, yep, yep, yep. Mm-hmm. Yes. Lots of opportunities to so get the, your housing news. That's right. So the first and fifth, they miss out. So speaking about 3CR shows, yes, perfect opportunity to mention the fact that it's Subscriber time. Which we forgot to mention last week. <laughs> I thought of it, but I, honestly, I couldn't get a word in entries oh. between you guys. <laughs> We're just so excited talking about geothermal energy. I know. Okay, Meg, it's your <laughs> it turn. Never talk, to, talk, never talk. seemed to be the right moment. <laughs> I'm like, so geothermal energy, but also um, subscribing. There's no segue between that. But um, what can we say about 3CR subscribing? I think it's important to be a joiner. That's what I've decided because other people, you know, people who don't agree with us join things. <laughs> no, listen, and then they lobby governments and then they get jobs in banks. And if you don't, you know, put your money where your values are, what happens? Other people join on, and they don't agree with us. Yeah, so. totally. There's such a deluge of uh, news and media from a variety of political perspectives and 3CR occupies a really unique mm-hmm. niche in that ecosystem. Yeah. So mm-hmm. we really appreciate and Absolutely. value your support. Yeah. And in the current climate politically, uh, it really is, the, when you listen to 3CR, you realise you are getting news that you're just not getting anywhere else. It's absolutely yeah. ignored. Mm. Uh, or else it's distorted in a, in a way that... Uh, we give it a, perhaps a different perspective as yeah. well. We come from a different angle. But that's right. And uh, and also, we only have two fundraisers a year. We have the Radiothon, which I loathe with a passion. <laughs> every, oh. every June it hits True me. True sound. Um, oh, I, I tell people every year I loathe it with a passion. Uh, I just hate trying to ask people for money, which we're doing right yeah. now. But the other one is our subscription drive in, in February. And um, we do ask people. It's 35 concession and pension. 75 if you're waged and 150 solidarity. If you want to give more, please do. But that's uh, all it is, just to become a member of 3CR. And, of course, with that, you can also vote at our annual meetings. You can vote, even run for the um, 3CR committee if you want. Mm. There's all sorts of advantages. And you you also get the regular uh, newsletter, etc. So all that comes along. Well, I think there's a regular newsletter.
I, I just, just wanted to say that, of course. I just um, said that. <laughs> <laughs> you have to make it now. <laughs> um, I was just trying to say that all the all the presenters here are volunteers, so that money goes directly to supporting the station. And we even bring our own tea in this tea. We don't even run the tea. And uh, how long have you been doing this show, Kevin? Oh, many think years. of the cost. Yeah, of the think of how much money you spend on tea. <laughs> <laughs> so there we are. So certainly we do urge people anyway to um, to, to, to subscribe because it, and it does keep these shows on the air. I mean, if, if we don't get the money, I think we in the early days of three CR when we said this, we were fair income. I mean, if we didn't get the money, the show the station just collapsed. Yeah, we could um, still say that. Yeah, now I mean, still, you said it in the newsletter. We, we don't know still, if that's true. We can, <laughs> we can still say it. I think we're slightly better off than we were then. But nonetheless, if the money doesn't keep coming in and in, at this time of year and the subscription drive and the radiothon then literally we are out of, out of business. And uh, not that business has much to do with 3CR, but the, you know what I mean. Australia's We're out of the business of bringing you independent journalism. That's right. And according to Scott Morrison and Peter Dutton, Australia's now open for business for uh, boat people, for uh, boat, people smugglers. Now yeah, there's a segue. There is a segue. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Yep. There you go. Off, off you go, Kevin. So, well, <laughs> I, no, I, I, the first thing I want to raise is an extraordinary piece. There's a bloke called Elmer Funkkappa, whom I used to give money to because he was head of the TAB for a long time. He was big, big chief of the TAB when it, after it was privatised, etc. He's also a, oh, a major investor and he's a, a, huh. uh, been CEO of a number of companies. He's been to do with the stock exchange. And he had a think piece in, what we can call it think piece, in yesterday's um, financial review as a book review with a little thing of the book at the bottom, the cover of the book, etc. down the bottom, uh, recommending people read this book. And you know what the book is he recommends? Oh, How to Give All Your Money to the TAB? No. In fact, I'll give you a clue. It's a, about 150 years old or more. Oh, uh, Mein Kampf? No, no, that's it's not 150. That's only, about, uh, that's only about 80 or something. Maybe it's close, yeah. Um, Darwin's Theory can... of Evolution. Oh. No, it's Communist Manifesto. Yay! Oh. Yes, ma- he recommends people read the Communist Manifesto. He says that the situation now is pretty similar to the situation, of, it's not as bad, but for workers as in 1848 when Marx, Marx wrote it and believed that international trade would fuel inequality in Britain and make countries subject to the will of more powerful trading partners. He saw the US as a critical player in this development. He was right, of course. Um, and he says today, you know, many things are similar and um, business needs to uh, read the Communist Manifesto, learn from it, and uh, it's up to business then to uh, make the world a better place. Um, that's his conclusion, of course. Um, many people feel the system is failing them. The University of Canberra recently published research that shows over the past 10 years voter satisfaction with democracy fell from 86% to 41 Wow. Then the 41 need to be huh. questioned. There is every chance that this trend will continue because Canberra seems unable to reform itself. In this environment, people expect business leaders to step in, speak up and drive positive change in society, as well as run successful businesses. And he says some people do it like Alan Joyce at Qantas. Well, that's a fine example, Alan Joyce at Qantas. But it's a case for business and their councils to lead the debate on issues that matter to people, wagging a collector, etc. So there you are. But if you read the Communist Manifesto, you learn from what you 
you've got to fight. Look, I don't think it's a bad thing if business leaders are reading the Communist no, Manifesto. I think it's great. <laughs> right. whatever, the, whatever agenda was behind well, that article, I think it's only a good thing. <laughs> so, so thank you, Elmer, for um, getting all your colleagues to read Marx and Engels. Fantastic. <laughs> see, see how yeah, that goes. But this is another wonderful little story, and I, uh, this one will move you to tears. Um, in an interview, people probably picked it up, but in an interview at the weekend on Channel 9 with um, Mrs. Morrison, Scott Morrison's wife, and doesn't even, oh, it does mention her name here somewhere, Jenny Morrison, she just Mrs. Morrison, the rest of the story. Um, she did a television interview. Did you see that? I don't know. No, I didn't. Oh, no, no one saw uh, it, I'm uh, sure. No <laughs> one saw it. But anyway, none of us would have said it anyway. But she said, and this is what makes you feel really, you know, what a great man he is. He's more emotionally sensitive than people realise and once was so upset about the detention of asylum seekers, he wept on his knees. That's true. He's sensitive about issues. He never took any of those decisions lightly. It seems like... He's gung-ho, but you need someone tenacious sometimes to hold the line. And she said that he, um, crying about the fate of young asylum seekers held in Papua, in Nauru and Papua New Guinea at a fundraising lunch for the Lifeline Suicide Prevention Service, he alluded to it. You'll find yourself on your knees, you'll find yourself in tears, he told an audience. And refugee advocates say Morris and Stan, this is hard to believe, are inconsistent with his policies. <laughs> How do they come to that conclusion? Wow. Just because he had the power to get them off of Nauru exactly. and, and avoid the tears. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no need that? to what's cry. That, what's that make it inconsistent? <laughs> Settle down, You're, Malcolm. That's him. Um, I think his view on asylum seekers is deeply hypocritical, Melbourne barrister Julian Burnside said. And Julian, of course, has been a major campaigner on this issue. Mm-hmm. Um, if you Look at his maiden speech, which Julian always quotes in his speeches, a maiden speech about what a great Christian he was and loving people and he, he devoted his life to people, etc., um, at which he parades his deep Christian beliefs. That's absolutely irreconcilable with his treatment of asylum seekers. I don't think any politician deserves to be taken seriously who says that. So, mm. But anyway, it shows he's a real human being who cries. Mm. Over. I mean, I think that's a great example of why we need independent community radio stations like 3CR. <laughs> if this is what gets published. Well, that's right. I mean, it but, might be true, but he it's also true that he has the power to absolutely change that. That's well, he the was thing. the minister who yeah. first put them there. Yes, and, exactly. Uh, yeah, I was like, the first, I think it was that little bloke, the little bloke who was there for years ago. Mm. No, but, but, yeah. Just lost to the sounds of history. Yeah. <laughs> he did the yeah. report on Christian beliefs or something following the same-sex debate. He did the Christian uh, thing, that, that little bloke. I, don't know who that I is. think he might have been the first, but whatever, one of them yeah. was. But then a he was later, one of the architects. Scott Morrison was one of the architects. Yeah, well, he was minister for a long time yeah. and could have got him off. Maybe he was, the, I don't know if he was the first or not. Mm. But anyway, this week I thought we'd have a look at a few of the, the way the Herald Sun's going at the moment. It's going well. It's going very well. We've got a couple of minutes. <laughs> Thriving. Yeah, you've got a very uh, big stack of papers in front yes, of Yes. Um, <laughs> well, we're heading up for a marvellous march in Melbourne. Uh, we've got Moomba, Melbourne Fashion Festival, the Formula One Grand Prix, Melbourne International Comedy Festival and Food and Wine Festival, drawing thousands of people to the city. Isn't that That's wonderful? That's so good because I know you love yeah. the fashion. Yeah. So we're going to hear a lot about <laughs> fashion over the next month. Looking yeah. forward to that. And, uh, they, don't, they don't mention that Moomba was actually Labor Day and they changed the name. What a pity. Oh, oh my that. God! Seriously? And in fact, then really? the Moomba committee banned unions from having ma- having floats in the thing. They just, whereas ma- Labor Day for years, it was just the march was union floats and all to do with what workers. What does Moomba mean? 
marches, well, unite. <laughs> they, they say it means let's, together and, let's get together and have fun, but some people from the Indigenous community say they played a big joke on the community and it actually means something very rude. It's an Indigenous um, word. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Okay. Yeah, right. Um, hmm. And it's Indigenous, but it, but it was it was a deliberate takeover yeah. of Labor Day to get Labor out of Labor Day. I mean, it also happens on the banks of the river that is a very significant Indigenous place, right? Yes, that's mm. right. And, and in fact, of course, the, the banks of the river where the working class speakers and all the other speakers that before yeah. television days used to speak is now the tennis centre. Oh. And the May Day March always went there as well and finished there and then it was given up to these people and now it's just private property for the very rich with millions of dollars of public money, as Kevin once again expresses one of his hates. <laughs> um, now, this one's an interesting... This is one of the pieces... This is where you like to see the really objective reporting you get in the Herald Sun. Yep. School strike sham. Hardline activists behind new student protest. Taxpayer-funded Echo Warriors are coaching children to skip school again next month, giving them detailed instructions on how to play truant, make posters, and organise marshals for a climate change protest march. Now, lol, make that, posters. Isn't, isn't, that object, isn't that objective reporting? The campaign even provides phone scripts and text message scripts for children to convert their friends to the cause and tell them to fill out form letters to principals, etc. And it goes on in that vein. Um, What's the actual program that they're talking about? Does it well, tell is it you the just, details? It's the, it's, it's the um, schools going on, kids going on strike for climate change. Mm. And seeing they're okay. the ones in your generation and those kids are the ones who are going to cop all the stuff that, um, <laughs> that writers of the Herald Sun are, are causing, I would have thought they've got every right to go out and march. They and, absolutely and, do. And good luck to them. Yeah. But the Federal Minister, Dan Tehan, slammed the orchestration of the strike as appalling political manipulation. Well, they do say it's run by... Despite claims the walkout is being initiated and led by volunteer school students, the Herald Sun has uncovered extensive links between the hardline Australian Youth Climate Coalition and <laughs> websites providing logistics for the truant day. And um, Tian goes on to say um, that... Um, where does he go on to say that... Uh, the Australian public will be cynical about a so-called student-led strike that is actually organised and orchestrated by professional activists. Mm. We'll be cynical. That's right. Parents have a right to know who is influencing their children, what their motives are and who was paying for it. And the, they point out, of course, that um, the Herald Sun points out that the Australian Youth Coalition which runs boot camps to train high school students to become climate activists, has received $786,000 in government grants over the past three financial years. How and much? 700000 Yeah, 700 and something oh, thousand. So they're, they're complaining about that, and, of course, they also complain about uh, dole bludgers and people on... Uh, the, yeah, is he here? Um, I think so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Here we're getting in. Well, I'll just finish with this one because following that, the next day they had this headline, The Big Dry, and now they're crying out that the state should give thousands and thousands and millions of dollars to farmers who are in trouble. Now, you oh, know, yeah. farmers are in trouble, but... Let's ignore that, climate change and attack children right, who are speaking out right. about climate change. And at the same time, right. let's give all the money that we can to people but deny like farmers that are struggling that's because right. of the drought and flooding that's and right. deny that any of it has to do with climate that's change. Right. Don't increase the Well summarised, mate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> okay. okay um, that's me done. I'm going home. Thank you very much. Is our guest arrived? Yeah, I, I think, think so. Let's take a break and come back with Alex Fanson. Yeah, okay. 
All right, welcome back to City Limits. Uh, so we're talking about housing today, and we've got in the studio guests Alex Fernside. So Alex is from a group called Urban Coop. They're a group of Melbournians who's setting up a new co-housing community. Welcome, Alex. Good morning, Eugenia. Good morning, Meg. Good morning, Kevin. Thanks very much for having me in today. No, thanks for coming. So do you want to just kick off by telling us a little bit about co-housing and how it's maybe different to other forms of housing that are available in Melbourne? Yeah, that's a great, great question. So co-housing is a really simple concept. It's been around for a long time. It's been very well developed in America, Europe. And fundamentally, it's about a built form that's designed by the people who live there, so co-designed, and the built form is designed to support the community. So you have places where you interact with the community. So the community also defines what they need for their community. So the Urban Coot's been working on this project for about 11 years. And we've defined what we need. And on Friday, the City of Moreland off, um, gave us a planning permit. Yay! So, <laughs> a massive milestone. So it becomes very real from this point. And we can talk about the history a little bit. But you know, just to recap, co-housing's about community and the built forms of boarding communities so they can be strong and resilient. And there's one thing I'll read out that's sort of been the guiding principle for the Urban Coop since we started, and it's that the Urban Coop is a resilient, positive and diverse community that contributes to a healthier world and one that enriches its residents' lives. And that's what our building's all about. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. So um, you guys have... Did you guys meet before you began to design this building with this kind of vision and intention and then go from there, or...? So the way we started, so 11 years ago, and this is a, it's a long project, and it's because it hasn't been done in Australia before like this. Um, so we are the first inner urban, privately funded co-housing development in Australia. Yeah, wow. There are co-housing developments and eco-villages outside of the, mm. the urban centres in major cities, but we are the first privately funded. Mm. Um, about 11 years ago, my wife and I and a couple of other people were sitting around a table in Coburg going, we've just moved to Melbourne and we're going, we'd like to own a house in Melbourne. There's nothing that the market's providing. You can go out to the far suburbs or you can buy a tower that's got no connection with your neighbours. Um, went to Canberra, where I'm from, and caught up with a friend. She said, oh, it's really interesting. My friend in Melbourne's having the same conversation. So the two groups, you know, about eight people came together and defined what we wanted to do. Um, then we recruited more people. Um, we worked out a financial model. So we've got a financial model that allows our money to be used as development funds, which means that the developers don't get the profit. We get the, we get the savings. So there's a slight twist there. So our money is used. Yeah. So on the journey, we raised um, $3.2 million for this project, which is about half the amount of money you need in equity. And most of that money was raised before we even knew where we would be, before we'd even found land. Um, so that's that's where we started, and it's been a long, steady process with lots of pitfalls, lots of heartbreaks, and finally we've got something that we can really celebrate. <laughs> so I suppose along the way you would have looked at the models and how they work in other places. I, I have friends who live in co-housing in Vancouver in yeah. British Columbia and um, have seen heaps of that kind of housing in North America, as you mentioned. Um, <clears throat> So I've, I've always been really curious, what are the barriers to that happening here? Why is it not happening and why hasn't it previously? And this is such a, a big challenge to kind of put something like this together for your group. My, re- my reading of it is there's, not, there's very little government support for the model. Yeah. Um, and that's why we've had to be privately funded. Um, we don't treat homes in Australia, housing in Australia like homes. It's like it's a development asset. Mm. So there's a fundamental mismatch there. Um, And if it's about about making profit for other people rather than the people who live there, 
and then you get a different outcome. So you get small boxes in tall, tall apartments where you can't meet your neighbours. Mm. Um, so I think there's structural barriers in Australia. I think there's sort of this whole idea of home as an asset rather than you know, housing as an asset rather than housing as a home. Mm. It's mm. part of that barrier. Um, housing in Australia is really expensive. Mm. And so for a group of people to put this sort of money that we've put in, um, not knowing where you're going and, and having that depth of trust. So in Australia, you what we've done in the Urban Coop, we've built deep trust with the group. We've all been able to hold hands and jump into the unknown together, which is a very, very unusual thing for a community group to be able to do. We've been able to accept the compromises. Um, one of the wisest things that was ever said to us on this journey was by Ian Walker, who set up Common Ground out in near Seymour. Mm-hmm. He sat with us very early on in our journey and he said, looked at all of us and said, one of the things you'll have to do is you'll have to give up something. To make this work, you'll have to give up something that you thought you wouldn't give up. Mm-hmm. And each and every one of us has given that up. I mean, none of us wanted to live in an apartment. We all we were looking to live in townhouses on the 10-kilometre fringe, but we couldn't afford that to, mm-hmm. to come in. Mm-hmm. So we've all given up something significant because we value what we're doing. We're valuing the legacy that we're creating for the people who are coming next. Um, and we want to share our lives with each other. That was my next question, which you've just answered. I was going to say, is it going to be individual houses or is it apartments? And how do you go about constructing it in a way that it makes it a community feel? Really good question. Um, first time anyone's ever said that to me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> first time for everything. Yeah. I'll say it twice more. Um, so our structure is we're, we're, we'll be an owner's corporation, so we'll have individually owned homes that can be sold and traded as you would have any other apartment. And the bit that brings the community together is when you walk into the development, there's a, a communal kitchen. So on the ground floor of our development, you walk in and it's the first thing you see is a place where everybody can cook and share a meal. If you don't want to cook and share a meal, you go to your apartment and cook your own meal. But there's that place where you can interact. It's like the heart of the community. Mm. Um, as you walk up to your apartment or catch the lift arm, you can see into people's apartments, little glimpses. So it's like, remember, when you're walking down the old streets in Carlton, you'd have people sitting on their front steps yeah. connecting. Um, we have things like a music room because a lot of our members, a lot of our community love music. So we've got a music room dedicated. We've got um, rooftop gardens. We've got flexible rooms. We've got guest rooms, which means that your apartment can be a little bit smaller because you've got all of these bits around the development where you can you know, have your own space or have space with others. And, of course, when you're in your, in your home, it's a very private space. Um, there's something else here that's really interesting we did a survey a little while ago, sort of the introvert-extrovert spectrum. <laughs> and we did that because we, you know, the, the architects needed to get a sense of how much privacy do we need and how much quiet space. And about 60% of the urban coop, maybe 70% are introverts. Um, so there has to be design where you have these casual interactions where you walk out of your home and you might bump into someone as you're walking down to get your bike. And the quiet of your own home, but also the social place that's the heart of the community. Mm. That's really yeah. interesting because I think that would subvert a lot of people's ideas of what it would be like to live in a community because I think some people fear that if they commit to some sort of shared living arrangement like this, then they'd be forced to interact with people <laughs> to a degree that they're not comfortable with. So, it's yeah, it's interesting to hear that there's a balance still. There's, there's also another um, very wise man, um, Peter Cock, who set up Mura Mura. I went. To, he was one of my lecturers at uni, and he came up to me at the Sustainable Living Festival. And he's a very tall man and very, you know, he's very caring. And he looks at me in the eye and he says, "Alex, never forget that living in community is not easy, and you guys have to learn how to do it um, because it's not easy. We know that, and as a community, we spend a lot of time 
doing courses around respectful communication, spending time learning how to listen. You know, a lot of what we do is listen um, to give people the space. So there'll be needs that, you know, somebody reminded me on the weekend that, yes, we've got the planning permit, and yes, we know which unit we're going to live in, which home we're going to live in. But it doesn't really start until we start living together mm. because there is that. We have, to, you know, the respect you give to your neighbours, the... You know, the barking dog that belongs to Mary versus the screaming screaming child. I mean, <laughs> and you've got a headache and you want it and you can't get rid of the noise because they've opened their window or something. Like, all of that stuff's going to come to bear. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. One, one of the other things that um, co-housing or intentional shared communities do is is re- require people to give a certain amount of their time to the community. Is that something you guys are planning to do? Uh, it'll, it's... We've never in the in the journey up to when we move in, we've never accounted for people's commitment and time. Mm-hmm. Um, we've always been very fortunate that people have been able to step up and mm-hmm. do what's needed when the time is required. When we're living together, that's a little bit unknown how that will work at this point. And then we're two years, maybe two, just over two years from when we actually move in. Mm-hmm. All of that work is going to be starting is being worked through now. Mm-hmm. The assumption is that the community has to run on community energy, mm-hmm. and if you have some people who can't put energy in, that's okay for a little while, but they can't. You can't, you know, the community has to reach out and cause you to be part of that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So it's a bit of a it's a bit of a non-answer, but the answer is mm-hmm. I it's anticipate it'll come. Yeah, the exact model we don't know. Mm-hmm. What about communal open space? Any of that? Yeah, so we've got a, a rooftop terrace on the fourth floor. It's about 150 square meters, and we're just you know we're working through to see if we can have another rooftop terrace on the eighth floor, which we think's in the design, but whether or not it's technically possible at the moment. How many floors are there? There's eight. Mm. I'm really, um, I'm really interested in this journey that you described of of learning to trust each other and and kind of starting to form that community before you move into the building that hasn't been built yet. Can you mm. talk a little bit more about that? Um, I think I'm, so. It comes back to Ian's comment: you're going to have to give up something that you didn't think you would give up. So I'll talk about it from my journey. So I, I joined my wife and I are one of the early joiners of the Urban Coop. We sort of co-founded it with a bunch of others. Um, and we really were doing it because we wanted to live in a sustainable home, you know, um, environmentally sustainable, low, you know, energy, you know, energy efficient, water efficient, all of those other things. And we couldn't buy that in the market. Mm. And then what happened on the journey? Because we just f- really fell in love with our neighbours, <laughs> um, which is strange. Like there's, there's one of our members is in hospital at the moment and it's like heartbreaking because she can't be in the workshops and it's just this real commitment to each other that came from getting to know each other deeply. Like this journey, like I'll take a step back. We almost got there four and a half years ago on another site with another development partner, but it didn't work. And we almost, we had a choice to walk away and start a, and start our own lives or to reform. And it was in that moment where we realised the dream might not happen that we really got closer mm-hmm. and more determined and in that determination, more patient. Mm. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, 11 years is a long time, but it sounds like maybe the setbacks have kind of helped you to become closer. And oh, I think so the setbacks, when you move in, that'll be an advantage almost. I think the setbacks have, have really have, have caused us to be close. Mm. Um, there's no other way. I mean, if we just got there really easily, we wouldn't have the strength of community because we've almost not gotten there so many times that you realise how important this is. It's not just important for us, it's important for the next group that comes. Because we know that a resilient community where you can share a meal together, where you know your neighbours and they can support you, 
is what's going to cause us to be able to be more engaged in some of the major issues in the world, you know, climate change, plastic pollution, um, social isolation, all of those things. So, so really it's, it's, a, it's to do that better. Um, a bunch of our members are really active in climate change. A bunch of our members are really active artists, um, really expressive in how they commit their time to making the world a better place. And the Urban Coop is all about mm. providing an environment that supports that. And being in a urban, of course, um, you can use public transport, which mm. is uh, the Commons. You all well know the Commons in uh, near Jewel Station, which has been you know there's no car parking space for residents. I don't know where they do put their cars because they've all got them. I think most of them. <laughs> but um, nonetheless, that idea where because you're close to public transport, you don't need car parking is that in- so? So we're just south of the Commons. Um, in yeah. we're one of the buildings in Nightingale Village. Um, and Nightingale Village is also, it's seven buildings, about 200 units, homes, and there's 16 or 14 car share spaces built in. Did I say dual station, the entity station? Yeah, I mean, but it's in between, right. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. right, yeah. Um, so we've, so we've, it, we accept that the cars are in part of our future, but the way that Nightingale Village has dealt with that is, um, I think GoGet's going to be the company that, delivers the car share cars so they'll all of the residents there will have access to a, um, a car share sure. car mm. close That's by a good idea. and then mm. there is the the issue of what do people do with their other cars if there are other cars and they could sell them it's really interesting isn't it? it's one of the things that people have given up so but also in that area there's there's at least a half a dozen a dozen long-term car parks on the market where you can rent them and so there's mm. car parks that are being built that aren't being used mm. um, that take the pressure off putting cars on the street as well. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah. I've got a couple of questions, but I'm going to... Um, one is about the finances and, mm. and the aspect, that, that side of it. But um, the other thing I'm curious about is d- the, the practicals of the design and how you work through that and, and if you have any specific things. So you were talking about being um, environmentally aware, um, design, and um, that kind of – we've talked about how the design influences the way that people interact, which is obviously very true. The built environment influences us a great deal. But also in terms of design, what are the strategies for being low impact? Um, so we're part of Nightingale Housing, so – They've got a requirement for a certain energy efficiency, certain material usage, zero carbon, no fossil fuel. Um, And that largely met what we need. They also do a lot of um, water reduction. Because we're part of a larger precinct, there's seven buildings, Mm. there's a lot of um, efficiency of scale around water treatment and energy generation and way we manage compost and rubbish, Mm. waste, um, and recycling, of course. Um, A lot of that details... You know, we've got high-level visions and the evidence that Nightingale can deliver that is in the Commons, is in Nightingale 1, Nightingale 2 and Nightingale 3. They've all hit really high benchmarks. So we're really comfortable with the environmental features. In yeah. terms of how the buildings have been designed, we've worked collaboratively with the architects on a number of workshops on a number of different concepts for where we would locate common spaces, how we would interact between apartments. So all of the apartments have north, south, windows where two towers and i can open my one of my windows and see into the a, a large void where i can see be able to interact with people if i don't want to interact with people i can close the blind um how we walk through the building and, and the spaces that are created so that if you bump into someone you can stop and talk 
So making sure all of the, the um, corridors are wide enough, the staircases are wide enough, and there's little breakout areas is really important. You know that idea when you sort of leave your house, um, you might walk down the street, you might say hello to three or four people as you get somewhere. Um, it's really important to us. Making sure that things like um, bicycles are parked so you have to walk there. You can't just get off your bicycle and get into your house without interacting with people. That's Is it different thing. to the design of the other Nightingale Towers? Um, it's different because we've been involved. There's a lot more common space. So there's about yeah. 300 square metres of common space that's, right. that's owned by everybody. Right. The other Nightingale ho- homes don't have that concentration or that scale of common spaces. Mm. Um, for example, the kitchen's 150 square metres, which means that about 60, 65 people can cook a meal and eat there. Yeah, cool. Mm. And it's been designed specifically for you guys with yeah. in workshops, yeah. Yeah, so we've there's been half a dozen workshops. Collectively, we've spent about 3,000 hours um, wow. as a team <laughs> on that design, so there's a lot of our effort. The architects have been amazing um, just in terms of their willingness to take it on board. Um, we struggled to find, in the early journey, we struggled to find architects who would understand what we would, wanted to do, and then we mm. found Breathe Architecture and Architecture Architecture, mm. and they're both massively willing to address our needs. Um, they talk about designing like a giant group house with spaces for people. We often talk on this program, of course, about the other side, people who simply can't afford housing at all or private housing. Um, but in this case, for people who've got some money, how much do you save by going through this process um, other than a developer selling it to you? Yeah, so th- th- this, we're getting all of the community facilities at about the same price as every other building that's being so higher efficiency, all the green stuff, all the environmental stuff, all the community stuff, means, and we're still buying at about the same price. Mm. So it's not uh, cost-saving per se and on the actual final sale, um, but it's very competitive in the open market at the moment. Mm. And you get what you want. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's higher quality. Mm. So we haven't, we've never, we haven't been able to work out how to get the common spaces and all the other pieces and all the environmental components in a way that actually, and then still pay, and pay significantly less than the market's charging. But what we do know is that our ongoing costs will be significantly less. Our energy bills, our food bills, all of those things. We'll be mm. growing food on, the, on those roof gardens. <laughs> That's the plan. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's a challenge in the urban environment on a rooftop. <laughs> we well, prob- Havana does it, so... Uh, yeah. We, we probably have to move on to chatting to April Bragg pretty soon, but I just wanted to ask you one final question. Like, what is your... Um, what is your take on the kind of housing availability in Melbourne generally and what kind of issues might we be facing in, in what is available now? Uh, I, th- I think the urban coop's the answer. <laughs> um, I, th- I think the small boxes that you get where you can't meet your neighbours, where you walk into an apartment where you have no relationship with anybody around you because you just cannot interact with them unless mm. you've happened to knock on their door. Mm. And I think the outer urban um, you know, small blocks, big houses, no no infrastructure around you is is really isolating. Mm. And I think we're building in a legacy that Melbourne, you know, we need to change that. And that's that's one of the reasons why the Urban Coop is we're so transparent in what we do. We share everything that we do so others can follow us. Mm. Yeah. Alex, people who might be interested and, you know, want to know more about it, how can they find out? Um, go to our website. It's um, www.urbancoop, U-R-B-A-N-C-O-U-P.org. Mm, um, we also have a Facebook page as well. Oh, good. Excellent. Is Fiona in the building? I presume she is. Okay, well, look, we're going to have to move. I'm going to need the next guest in the building, but uh, Alex, thanks a lot. Same. Mm, thank you. Thank well, you very much. Yeah. And good luck with it all. Thank you. We look forward to coming back and sharing <laughs> more when we're, when we're living there in two and a bit years. <laughs> I might, might pass you on the bike path. Or <laughs> I, hope, I hope so. <laughs> 
Sorry to fade that one, everyone. That's Mojo Juju, um, Native Tongue by Mojo Juju, which is a great song. But I'll, I'll play it again at the end of the show. But we've got uh, Fiona here in the station. Fiona York from Housing with Age Action Group. Yeah, and Fiona, um, of course, the Housing with the Age Action Group come in once a month on this third Wednesday to talk to us about housing issues. We just talked about um, people who could afford, and um, it's a good idea, the co-op, because it does, uh, it does allow people to get what they want. But, of course, we talk also about people who simply can't afford, even in private, rental mm. uh, to survive. But uh, I just want to start, the, the, the current Royal Commission into Aged Care, are, are you involved in that at all? Yeah, we are. We put um, a submission into the terms of reference to ask them to consider um, the importance of housing in delivering aged care and also the importance of retirement housing because a lot of the similar issues with retirement housing in terms of dodgy management unfair mm. contracts, hidden fees mm. uh, in residential care and in, in retirement housing. Unfortunately, they um, they didn't include retirement housing in the terms of reference, but we will be submitting to the Aged Care Royal Commission and we do have a general meeting next week, actually, next um, Thursday the 28th for members to come along and tell us about their experience of accessing aged care. Mm. Um, and as we know, people have been... Um, the focus for a long time has been keeping people out of residential care. So nursing homes is really only for people that are very, very um, mm. sick and need and need kind of that sort of level of support. Mm. But mostly people need to uh, be encouraged to stay at home. And if they don't have affordable housing or they mm. don't have appropriate housing, it's extremely difficult to deliver good quality in-home aged care. So that's the focus for us in the Aged Care Royal Commission. Mm. Mm. And there's been a little bit more in the media about how um, older women in particular are increasingly... Homeless. Yeah. yeah. Um, there was, in the last census, they showed there'd been the biggest jump of all were older women, um, yeah. age 55 or 56 plus. Mm. And so that's certainly what we're seeing. And we're seeing also people who are falling through the gaps in terms of us being able to help them because, firstly, we're getting more people coming to us in crisis. Mm. And also, we're getting people who have got a little bit of savings, which means they're ineligible for public housing but they don't have enough to buy into anything else and so mm. they basically have to bump around from place to place um, relying on friends and family and couch surfing and whatever until their savings go and then they're eligible and that's just crazy that is crazy mm. yeah yeah absolutely ridiculous yeah but it was a major i've seen the media at the time to be a major oversight in the in the royal commission um terms of reference mm. that that housing generally for older people mm. was left out because yeah. that's an important as- aspect of the whole thing it's major it's yeah. it's huge yeah. and it's going to be increasing as older people as more and more people age the the housing crisis is going to be focusing on that i guess traditionally people have thought, talked about youth and homelessness but really According to the statistics, the highest percentage are older people and older women. Mm. Yeah. Mm. You'd be sorry to hear that Avio Group, which has got great publicity on Four Corners a year or so ago, mm. um, they're um, having a bit of trouble with the, with the market declining. Um, they've lost value because uh, people can't afford to, to sell and buy up because the, the housing, the want to sell is dropping, and so it's causing problems for them. They did say, though, and they, they're very good, they're internationalists, they said that they um, they want to. They're looking at uh, what is, by world standards, really good practice in this area, and thinking about whether they can export them to overseas. That's their. That's the sort of thing they they do. Um, 
Um, do you feel that they're the best practice at all? In, oh, uh, I think maybe in their own minds, I guess. <laughs> I think that's the thing about having um, standards where the industry is the ones that are ticking their own boxes, and that's definitely what's happening with Avio. Um, oh, yeah. And a whole bunch of them, really. Like, yeah, it's they're pretty notorious, and, yeah, they're definitely not the um, low, the affordable kind of low-income end of the retirement housing scale either. Mm. So, yeah. There's, there's less and less of that these days as well. More and more profit-making people getting into the business of older people, mm. which yeah. is just a bit tragic. Mm. Yeah, well, it's happening also in the disability area. There's, mm. there's a lot of money going in, government money going into private companies building housing for disability, people with disabilities through the National Disability Insurance mm. Scheme. Um, and it, it seems to me, again, that this is, this is public money that should be going directly into public housing, but it's been given to private developers, yep. and they're encouraging. They actually are having seminars for private developers telling them how they can exploit the government handouts to get into this area. It's just terrible. Like, mm-hmm. honestly, this, is, this has been... We're seeing this everywhere in disabilities, in aged care, in, in housing this whole idea that the market is going to solve the problems of, of the society that we've created mm-hmm. and the people that are missing out are somehow going to be helped by a market approach to providing basic needs like shelter. Yeah. And it's just it's just worse and worse as we see it happen. Um, with but it sure as hell helps the market if you hand them millions of your dollars, of course. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, hidden subsidies as well. It's just not okay. And we're seeing that in the aged care sector as well. So usually, I mean, in the past, the government has supported kind of what they call, you know, diversity areas. So people... Um, LGBTI or culturally diverse or um, people experiencing or at risk of homelessness have been kind of supported to access aged care. But now with the market, there's no... They talk about thin markets rather than actually providing a service. Mm. And it's just a complete mind shift that over the last 10 years, those supports have been slowly eroded away. What's meant by thin markets? Thin markets is where there's no money in providing a service because there's not enough people. Oh. Or not enough profit. Or not enough profit. <laughs> yeah, it's too expensive to deliver that service. So in rural areas, for example, the idea that there'll be competition between two providers yeah. and that a consumer can choose between A and mm. B, yeah. I mean, which will theoretically make A accountable to be better. To be, yeah. yeah, and that doesn't happen if there's no A or B. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's pretty bad. Yeah. And, uh, you raised because you mentioned about um, providing a service, and mm. I, that's what reminded me of that. Because one of the companies that's trying to exploit all this government money and uh, talked about the fact that it wants to provide a service for people with disabilities, as if it, you know, it got it woke up that morning and said, "I think today we should do this." Um, and obviously, profit motive doesn't come into it at all. Mm. Uh, yeah. Mm. Well, it's good to know, isn't it? This I mean, sometimes, these, sometimes these developers get gifted land as well that yeah. used to be public land, as, as far as I understand. Indeed, that's the case. Yeah. 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 yeah, I mean, talk about profits. That's yeah. land that they can exploit yeah. for the rest of their financial lives. Yeah, and that's what yeah. we're seeing with the um, redevelopments as well in public housing is mm. that the community housing providers are being basically gifted the land. And so our private developers have been gifted the land, which is owned by us, the taxpayer, and, yeah, should be used for public housing. So what is the latest on the um, redevelopment? Yeah, we haven't. I haven't heard much for a while, actually. I'm not really sure. Um, we. I don't know if you guys caught the report that came out last Friday that the north and west 
um, homelessness services um, put out. It's, it was called A Crisis in Crisis about oh, yes. the state, the really terrible state of um, emergency housing. Yeah. And it's a compounded by a whole bunch of mm-hmm. things that have come together. One is a closing down of what they call, you know, the places of last resort. So caravan parks and hotels and places where they used boarding to put houses. boarding houses, rooming houses. Mm. Yeah. So a heap of them have closed. And now there's basically three or four hotels that are supporting, you know, being the place where emergency housing has to go. And they've had enough. Homelessness services no longer want to do that because they're so terrible. And mm. if you look at the dollar figures that have gone into it, it's something like $2.5 million in one year wow. went to dodgy hotels. Imagine if that $2.5 million mm. in one year went to providing long-term affordable housing. Mm. It's absolute madness. And it's really great that the um, sector is banding together and saying, we're no longer going to do this. We're not going to send these vulnerable people to these absolutely appalling places. It's about time the government stepped up and put good money into good housing and not throwing good money after bad. So if if the report's online, I encourage everyone to have a read because it's just really terrible. Um, The case study that they use is someone who's age 56 so under the priority housing service in Victoria, she is eligible for um, housing to, as a priority because of her age, she's over 55. But throughout being pushed from pillar to post for months and months and months in private rental, dodgy emergency housing, um, only after many months, and with lots of support from Tenants Union and places like that to help her get better housing outcomes, she did finally get into um, long-term affordable public mm. housing. But had that intervention happened mm. earlier and had the housing stock been there, that she would have avoided all of that pain with her and her partner. So, mm. yeah, it's really, it's really worth having a look at. Yeah. There's constant examples, aren't there, of where public money goes into this stuff, into private pockets, where we, it simply would build so much public housing mm. if it was yeah. direct. We'd say that it, we've been saying that for years and we're just going to keep <laughs> saying it because <laughs> it's true. Broken record stuff. Yeah, that's yeah. right. There was a, um, a, another survey that came out in the last week or two um, the Household Financial Comfort Report, which claimed that most people are better off, but it did at least concede. Um, it, and it says the number of Australians in housing stresses on the decline as property prices fall, a survey shows. But experts warn cooling conditions offer little help to those who need it most. And they're the ones who uh, one would have thought should be, should be getting better. Um, uh, but um, Everybody's Home Campaign spokesman, spokeswoman, Kate Colburn, you know, Everybody's Home Campaign? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, it's yeah. a national campaign. It's, right. Yeah. Said cooling property markets across the country did not ease the urgent need for a boost in social and affordable housing. It's rents at the lower end of the market that have been increased the most. You've got a lot more competition for cheaper rental properties. And of tenants surveyed, 14% were putting a whopping 50% or more of their income toward the rent. Now, that's just mm-hmm. disgusting. Yeah, yeah. I think the definition of housing stress is if you're paying more than 30%. Yes. And nearly everyone I don't comes know, to... a single person that's paying less than 30%. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. 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 I know very few who are paying less than 15 <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you're on New Start, you're absolutely screwed. You could be paying 120. 100. That's yeah. right. Yeah. 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 I've, there's no way that you could survive. I don't know how mm. you could find a home. Yeah. I guess you could share a room with yeah. other people. Yeah. yeah. Or a comfortable little gutter somewhere. A homeful, yeah. yeah. And yeah. some yeah. of the women that are coming to us are in that category too because they're say 60 plus and they're not pension age yet but they're on new start and they're having to do um activities look for work that's right yeah yeah Yeah. and uh, one of the things that's not often talked about is the effect on an individual's mental health 
to be um, ha- have that constant insecurity yeah. of, of of housing and, and shelter. Yeah, uh, I, they did a study. I think it was the Benevolent Society did a study last year that showed that. Um, the number one thing in health and well-being for older people is secure housing, like yeah. number one. So there's a whole mm. lot of focus on, I don't know, falls risk and diabetes and diet and exercise mm. and social mm. connection, all that stuff. That's all important. But number one is housing. Mm. And it's just not considered in the broader scheme of things mm. in terms of health and well-being and, and the savings that um, are made by having a secure house to avoid repeated hospitalisation or yeah. um, all of those sorts of things as well. So you can imagine if you're age 16 or new star in private rental, how healthy are you going to be feeling? Mm. You're not going to be able to go Constant do your yoga stress. course or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Just run around the block and head back to the gutter. Yeah, um, yeah and, and that... Um, yeah, that's um, part of the uh, part of the problem, of course, that um, older people just generally, as this probably this inquiry is showing, are just getting forgotten in the process. Mm. Aren't they? I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's interesting that what, the stuff that Kate was saying there about the property market. We keep hearing about the terrible state of the economy that's going to occur when the property market cools, whatever that means. I think that's pretty much going to be a hit for investors who yeah. drove the prices up in the first place. It's certainly yeah. really not going to be affecting people who yeah. are trying to get into housing. So, I mean, let it cool. Yeah. <laughs> well, that, I mean, that, that's the irony, isn't Put it? Put it on I mean, ice. <laughs> I've got a couple of headlines just to, just to show that up. In the Financial Review in the last week, housing outlook worsens as credit crunch bites investors. Now, worsens means that they're losing value, not that they you know, these are the same people who at other times say they want affordable housing, but suddenly if they if the prices do come down, they scream. But over the page, uh, same day, investors back on property bargain hunt. And um, so you've got other investors with big money now buying up, knowing it's going to go through the roof again. Uh-huh. So they're actually exploiting it. Um, but when it goes through the roof, they'll probably start saying they really love to provide affordable housing. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's again, good. it's altruistic. Yeah. yeah. Mm. We've got about uh, five minutes left, so if there's any urgent questions or anything in particular that you want to let us know about what's happening with Housing for the Aged. Yeah, I guess we. I wanted to plug our general meeting next week where we're talking about aged care. So we're doing, we can't make any official announcements yet, but we are doing some work in that space about trying to get people who are at risk of homelessness accessing aged care and Mm. being able to tell I mean, through with through research and through data, tell pe- tell the government how it's not working mm. um, for for older people, particularly those that are at risk. So, um, I'd encourage anyone that would like a, a lovely lunch and a chat to come down to Ross House <laughs> <laughs> next Thursday. Um, the other thing is that there's um, Ahuri, which is the Australian Housing Urban, Urban Research, research Institute. That's yeah. the one. Yeah. Um, they're doing a um, workshop next Tuesday in the city, um, and they're looking for people that who have experienced homelessness or um, at risk of homelessness who are older mm. to tell them about their experience and that's with the view to improving um, the how the homelessness system for older people because we know that although you know this great northwest has talked about the emergency housing problem in the northwest um, it's even worse for older people so mm. we know that that system is failing older people and that's why we need to have a specialist service like housing for the age to help mm. um, so yeah if people are available they can contact us at the office right and the yeah. ahuri uh, session what time's that and where that is at the multicultural hub and it's in two parts so there's a women's only one in the morning mm. and then there's a general for everybody one in the afternoon um, the afternoon one starts at 1 30 and the other one's at 10 
So 10 o'clock in the morning, yeah. women's one, and the multicultural yeah. hub, of course, is opposite Victoria Market, so I think people oh, know yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so that's, uh, and your general meeting is on the next day, is it? It's, no, it's the, it's the, oh, two days after that. It's two on days. Thursday, the 28th. I'll be Tuesday. Yeah. Am I getting confused? I am getting confused. Okay. <laughs> the 26th and the 28th. <laughs> right. End of Feb. Yeah. Put it in your calendars, everyone. <laughs> Rightio. And uh, and what else is happening then? Because we've got a couple of minutes left. So oh, I should also know. say that um, our Race the Roof show on 3CR is going oh, to fortnightly. Right. We mentioned oh. that earlier. Yeah, oh, did you? Great. Oh, no, we might have mentioned it off air. I'm well, sure. no, we, I think we said something about it, but we were yeah, a little bit. Yeah. So what is it at the moment? At the moment, it's monthly. It's been right. monthly for years and years. Um, right. And it's usually at 6 o'clock on the fourth Wednesday. Um, so we'll be moving to the second and the fourth Wednesday of the month at 5.30 instead of 6. Um, and so we're going to have some new voices on. We're going to have some people that are on our committee nice. who are living in different types of housing. And we're going to um, hopefully have a lot more voices of older people on the show, which we're really pushing for this year. So we're hoping to, yeah, we want to go around Ooh. and talk to our former clients and people who we've housed successfully and hear their stories and um, the Molly Hadfield and Francis Pennington Awards are on next week as well. Right. And we've got some of our – and that's – I don't know if you're aware. They're, they're awards that are um, given once a year to people who live in public housing and social housing, so tenants who have done something great for their community. They can oh, be cool. nominated by anyone. And we've nominated a couple of our volunteers, so we'll mm. be coming along to that as well and hopefully interviewing all of the nominees because – even getting a nomination is pretty awesome. Fantastic. So, cool. Yeah. 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 Mm. So stay tuned for that new show. It's exciting. Yeah. All right. My dear old Molly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and Edith, a great, great couple. Um, I think I remember you saying something about them once and were they like stopping a train they or something? They stopped a train, the maritime dispute. They, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I've told you that story. I'll tell you again on here very briefly for a minute. But uh, yeah, during the Saturday morning when the coppers, came, when the people burst through and the coppers couldn't stop them, um, later in the morning someone came down and said, "Quick, back the trains. There's a train coming in. We've got to stop it." And then shortly after they came back and said, "It's okay. There's two little old ladies sitting on the track." <laughs> and I thought to myself, "I better know who they are." <laughs> and he, he said, "We've got no idea who they are." I said, oh, well, "I've got every idea who they are." <laughs> and it was Molly Hadfield and Edith Morgan, of course, and they were two, a, two great campaigns. The Union of Australian Women have got a, a DVD that has them on the cover, <laughs> and, it, and it's yeah, it's called Radical Women. It's really great if you ever get to see that. Well, actually, I, I chaired um, I chaired at Collingwood Town Hall the memorial service for Edith up when she died. And I made the point that shortly before that there'd been a photo of uh, bank bank workers marching up the street, which is a rarity, having a strike. And at the front with them was Edith said, <laughs> marching. And the story in the age said, I bet they didn't. I bet this little old lady didn't realise what people she was marching with. And I, I made the. I said, I bet they didn't know who they were marching with. <laughs> <laughs> and she hated being called a little old lady, by the way. Yeah. Uh, who would want to be called a little old lady? Yeah. That's yeah. pretty patronising. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Okay, well, time's up. But, um, Fiona, thanks for coming in. Thank you. And next week, we're hoping to get the um, the Environment Defenders Office in Sydney, and as we mentioned last week, to talk about that decision on on the Gloucester coal mine in the oh. Land and Environment Court up there where they knocked, knocked it back on the grounds of climate change and meeting yep. our Paris commitments, which has industry up in arms, but the environmentalists rather pleased. And the so, and on a related topic, I was hoping I might be able to get someone to talk about the situation with the Murray-Darling River and the Murray-Darling Basin yep, sure. Committee. Yep. Yeah. Okay, so that's next week. 
Fiona, mm. thanks for coming in. Thank say, you. Thank you. And say goodbye, everyone. Thanks for the thanks for listening. This has been City Limits, and Joe's up next with Anarchist World this week. <laughs>